Well, good morning. When I was growing up, Easter was a big deal in our family. Let me show you a few pictures. This is me and my sister when I was six months old with our Easter baskets and our chocolate. Here's another one of me uh, at one and a half with my blow-up Easter bunny. Here's me at two and a half searching for Easter eggs in my bathrobe. Uh, and then here's another one from later that day. We got dressed up and looked a little nicer. This is me and my sister and my mom. My dad's taking the picture. And then here's another one. This is when I was four years old and my grandfather gave me a bunny for Easter. And I named my bunny Sonny. <laughs> and uh, I think I've got chocolate in my mouth there. You can see that. And I think I'm also wearing the coolest gray polyester suit ever. Now, uh, I could keep going. I could show you pictures all day long. But the point is this. Easter was a big deal in my family. We always did Easter baskets. We got Easter candy. We dressed up. We took pictures, and we always went to church where we sang and celebrated and heard the message of Jesus rising from the dead. And I always believed it. I never really questioned it. And if you're here or you're listening and you grew up going to church, uh, you probably got dressed up for Easter. It was probably the highlight of the church year for you as well. You probably sang the same songs and heard the same message, and believed the same things. And it was good, right? It was good. But at some point, you grow up. And when you grow up, you begin to ask questions about all of the things that you accepted as a kid. You begin to think for yourself, right? You begin to figure out what you're going to believe about yourself, about the world, about what's right and wrong, about what's true and what's not true. And we all go through that process. But if you grew up going to church, then part of that process is asking questions about what you learned in church, about the Bible, about God, and about faith. And one of the most important questions we can ask is this, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Right? All those songs that I sang, all of those sermons I heard, all of those Easter's that I celebrated, do I really believe that that story is true? Now, maybe you did not grow up going to church. Maybe your journey of faith started later because you met someone who was a follower of Jesus or a group of people, or maybe something happened in your life that provoked you to begin exploring faith or maybe begin reading this book called the Bible, or learning about this guy named Jesus. But at the center of that faith journey and that exploring, you still ultimately have to ask this question. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Because if he didn't, well, then half of what's written in this book is useless, right? Because it's, it's based on the idea that he did rise from the grave. It's written by people who actually believed that it, and who reshaped their entire lives around that and who started a movement that you are now a part of based on that idea. In fact, uh, one of those people, the Apostle Paul, said that if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then our faith 
is useless. It's worthless. It's foundationless. It's hopeless. And so today, I I simply want to ask this basic question. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? And I can't prove to you that he did. I can't prove to myself that he did. Because you can't prove anything that happened in the past with 100% certainty. So we look at evidence and then we make judgments and decisions based on that evidence. And our judgments and decisions will require some element of faith. But it's not a blind leap of faith. It's an informed faith. And it's that informed faith that can sustain us when we go through the seasons of doubt or the seasons of hardship in our lives. And so today, I I simply want to share with you the evidence that has been most compelling for me to continue to believe that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And then I'll show you why, share with you why it's so, so significant. So let's jump in. Uh, The first compelling evidence is the number of eyewitnesses. Because it would be one thing if one or two people saw Jesus alive after he was crucified, but we have so many witnesses. right? We have the women who went to the tomb. We heard their story just a little bit ago. Mary Magdalene, a different Mary, and a woman named Salome. We have 11 other disciples who saw Jesus. We have other followers of Jesus, like a guy named Cleopas and his wife. We have Jesus's brother James, who is not an original follower of Jesus. And by the way, all of these people are specifically named. And that's really important because when Jesus's resurrection was first reported, you could say, hey, if you have any questions about this, go talk to James. Go talk to Cleopas, right? Go talk to Salome. Go talk to Thomas. They will tell you what they saw. We even have a guy named Paul, right? A Jewish leader who hated the Jesus movement. And the list goes on. In fact, we're told that Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses. And this didn't happen on one occasion or in one particular way or to one type of person. Jesus appeared to Men and women, he appeared to small groups of people, medium groups of people, large groups of people. He appeared indoors, outdoors, in the countryside, in the city, in Judea, in Galilee. He appeared in the morning. He appeared in the evening. He appeared sitting down with people. He cooked breakfast with people. He ate food with people. He talked with people. He walked with people. See, the number of diverse people who saw Jesus and the number of diverse ways that people saw him and interacted with him, it really is astonishing. Now, let me pause there because there is one alternative theory that Jesus did not really rise from the grave. Rather, it was all a hallucination that after Jesus died such a horrible death, the disciples went home to Galilee And they were traumatized, rightly so, by what they had experienced when he was crucified. And and Peter especially, because he had denied Jesus. And so he was carrying this very deep guilt. And psychologically, it was destroying him. So in this emotional state of distress, Peter had a vision. He imagined that Jesus was right there in the room with him, forgiving him of his 
sin and his denial. It was a psychologically induced hallucination that Peter assumed was real, right? In fact, he was so sure that it was real and he was such an influential person that he actually persuaded all of the other disciples that Jesus really was alive. Now, it's an interesting theory, but it does not explain all of the people who said they actually saw Jesus. It means that all of those people have to be lying in some form or fashion, right? It doesn't explain Thomas, who never believed anything Peter told him until he saw it with his own eyes. It doesn't explain the eyewitness account of James, Jesus' own brother, who he said was not a follower of Jesus. James didn't believe in the whole Jesus is the Messiah thing until he saw the risen Jesus. It certainly doesn't explain Paul. I mean, it means... Paul would have had to have his separate, own separate hallucination experience. But Paul didn't feel guilty about anything. Paul didn't have a guilt-ridden conscience. Paul didn't have this traumatic event happen that he was trying to make sense of. In fact, Paul hated the Jesus movement. And the only thing Paul was laying awake at night thinking about was how to persecute more followers of Jesus. And then something happened. Something inexplicable happened to Paul on the road to Damascus and it caused him to do a 180 degree turn in his life. And the best explanation is that he actually did see the risen Jesus. So the the number of eyewitnesses is really significant. But here's a second piece of compelling evidence. The reliability of the New Testament accounts. Because the eyewitness stories uh, are documented in these books we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's also stories in the book of Acts. And then there's some, uh, also some references and things in a whole bunch of letters. And, and all of those books are put together and they make up what we call the New Testament now, right? Now, I have a skeptical side of me. And my skeptical self says, yeah, sure, we have all of these accounts right? These resurrection eyewitness accounts that are included in these books, but the books were written by followers of Jesus. We can't trust these documents. They're biased. They're written with an agenda. They're not neutral, objective accounts. But this is where studying history uh, uh, really helps us. Because here's the reality. All of ancient history is this way. All of the documents we have about the Persian Empire, about Alexander the Great, about the Roman Empire, every document we have about ancient history is written by someone who was biased, someone who had an agenda, someone who was not neutral. In fact, there is no such thing as a completely objective account. And so one thing scholars do to determine uh, the reliability of these ancient documents we have is to look at manuscript evidence. What kind of manuscripts do we have of these ancient documents? And how old, how old are they? Because we don't have the originals. So the copies that we have, how close are they to when the originals were actually written? And we did a deep dive into this a few years ago. It's in a, a series called People of the Book. So you can go on our website and listen to it if you want. But Here's the short version. We have more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament documents than any other ancient work. 
And we have much older and better preserved manuscripts of the New Testament document than any other ancient work. Uh, let, me, let me give you a quick example. This is a really important example, though. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote the definitive history of the Roman Empire in the first century AD, right? This is the same time Jesus was alive. His work, Tacitus's work, is called the Annals, the Annals of Imperial Rome. And uh, this is a picture of one of the oldest manuscripts we have of the Annals. Now note this, Tacitus is a Roman senator. He comes from a wealthy, elite, aristocratic family. He is part of the ruling authorities. His father-in-law is the Roman general who conquered Britain for the Roman Empire. So Tacitus is not neutral, nor is he objective when he's writing his history of Rome. Now, uh, his work was written in about 100 AD, and uh, some of that work has been lost. There's gaps in what we have. We don't have all of the volumes of it, but the earliest surviving copy of what we do have dates to about 1000 AD. So that's 900 years between when it was originally written, right around 100 AD, and the oldest copy that we have. And we have about 30 manuscript copies of it that exist from before the time of the printing press when things were published widely. And historians, you need to know this, historians depend on Tacitus. They rely on Tacitus as the most trustworthy source of documentary information we have about the Roman Empire during this time. Now, let's compare that to the New Testament documents, which include all of these eyewitness accounts, right, of Jesus' resurrection. The New Testament documents were written roughly between about 40 and 90 AD. We have a manuscript of the entire New Testament it's called Codex Sinaiticus, and it's dated from about 350 AD. We have all kinds of other manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. In fact, we have a fragment from the book of John that is dated to about 100 to 150 AD. And we know that John is one of the last books written in the New Testament, probably written around 90 AD. So think about that. That is a difference of between 10 and 60 years from our oldest fragment or manuscript to when it was originally written. Compare that to 900 years for Tacitus. And then, do you know how many fragments and manuscripts we have of the New Testament documents? Over 5,000. That's incredible. You see, when you put these on the screen and you compare the New Testament to something like Tassus, or I could have put a ton of other examples up there, Julius Caesar, Homer, all of the great works of literature or history from the ancient world, when you compare the New Testament to anything else we have from history, there's no comparison. You can't get any more reliable or trustworthy in terms of the documentary evidence. And that's extremely compelling to me. Another piece of evidence is the authenticity of the stories. 
right? Because even though we have really good manuscript evidence, we still have to ask, well, is it possible that the original writers of the New Testament, when they first wrote these things down, is it possible they made it all up? Meaning the stories about Jesus' resurrection, is it possible they're lying about that? Is it, is it possible that this is all a fraud? How do we know they didn't make up this story that Jesus rose from the grave? And so this is where scholars look for signs of authenticity when they examine historical documents. And there are several things that really stand out with these stories. Uh, first, the four gospel accounts have inconsistent details when it comes to the resurrection story. They seemingly contradict one another in the four different ways they tell the story. So uh, Mary Magdalene is a central figure in some of the counts, but in one of the counts, she's not mentioned really or named at all. Uh, Mark says that the women went to the tomb after the sun rose. John said that they went to the tomb while it was still dark. Matthew and Mark say that there was one angel at the tomb. Luke and John say there are two angels at the tomb. Now, I could go on and on, but there's a whole bunch of other details, and they're seemingly contradictory at times. And at first, when you read this, it feels like a problem, right? You're asking the question, why are there inconsistencies? Doesn't that raise suspicions about these accounts? But let me ask you this. If you and your friends are going to make up a story that you're going to try to fool everyone else with, if you're going to try to convince everyone else that this story is true, even though that you know it's not true, aren't you going to work really hard to make sure everyone tells the same story? Right? Aren't you going to work really hard to sync up all the details? Don't, don't you want to iron out any inconsistencies, right? I got, I got one angel at the tomb. You got two angels at the tomb? Like, what are we going to go? Should we go with one or should we go with... But we need to pick one or the other, right? You, you see, if the disciples made this all up, if this is all a cover-up, if the writers of these accounts are lying, do you know what we would expect? Uniformity. Not inconsistency. See, the inconsistencies actually point to their authenticity. Uh, also, the gospel writers, if they were making this up, they would have never put women in the story as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection. You wouldn't make that up. I, I hate to say this, ladies, but women in that culture were not considered credible witnesses. In fact, women couldn't even be, be witnesses in a court of law. And so if you're writing the story and you're making it up and you want people to believe your story, you have well-respected, trustworthy men going to the tomb early that morning. You would not have women going. Uh, one more thing, if the disciples are making up a story because they're going to launch a movement or they're going to get famous, right? You don't make yourself look bad in the story. And the men disciples look pretty bad. In fact, they, they look like faithless cowards at times. And the best explanation for all of this is that they were faithless cowards at times. And that the women really did go to the tomb first. 
and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were simply recording what actually happened. Because if they were making this up, they would have written it very, very differently. Now, there's a few more things that are compelling evidence for me. Uh, There's the surprise of the resurrection. See, uh, the idea of Jesus rising from the dead, it's not a surprise to us. It's normal to us. We've heard this story our whole lives. You've heard it in church your whole life, or if you didn't grow up going to church, you've still heard the story. You know the story. But nobody in their culture would have expected this. In the Old Testament, Hebrew people believed that when you died, you died. That's it. There was nothing past this life. When you go to the grave, your body and your soul stay there forever. Now, in the few hundred years before Jesus, a belief arose within uh, the Jewish faith that one day at the end of human history, God would raise all people up back to life, some to eternal life with him, some to judgment. But this would be a cosmic event. This would be a universal event for everyone at the end of time, the end of human history. So when Jesus says to his disciples, and he says this several times, if you've read through the Gospels or you know his teaching, he says several times to them, I'm going to be killed, but then I'm going to rise from the dead. We read that and we think, how in the world did the disciples not see this coming? I mean, it feels like Jesus is predicting his resurrection all the time, right? But that's from our perspective of knowing what happened. They thought Jesus was talking about the cosmic event that would happen at the end of time for everyone. They never saw Jesus rising from the dead as one person in the middle of time because they had no framework for that whatsoever. Which, when you think about it, it's really compelling evidence that they did not make this up. They couldn't have made it up because they had no categories for it until it actually happened. Uh, There's also the absence of counter evidence. So if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, where's the counter evidence? I mean, the most obvious would be his body. If he really died, why was the tomb empty? What happened to his body? What happened to the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb? And why couldn't they locate his body later? Why don't we have documents from the Jewish leadership saying, here's what really happened? Why don't we have documents from the Roman authorities or government saying, this is what really happened? There's just not any good counter evidence for us to consider. All we're left with is alternative theories that are just speculation, and we should consider those, but there's just not really any counter evidence that supports them. And then there's the radical transformation of the disciples. This is really compelling because there's no question that Jesus was arrested, tried, and executed. I mean, that's well documented, not just in the New Testament documents. It's actually documented in in sources outside of the New Testament. In fact, Tacitus himself that I mentioned a moment ago, in his work, The Annals, 
his history of imperial Rome during the first century, he describes the execution of Jesus. Now, after Jesus is crucified, think about how his disciples would have been. Think about how someone like Peter would have been after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Peter would have been scared for his life, right? Because he was a known associate of Jesus. He was one of the leaders in the movement. And Jesus was just eliminated by the Jewish leadership and the Roman authorities. And there's every indication that they'll probably look for other leaders in this movement and eliminate them as well. So he would have been scared. Uh, he would have been in despair, right? He just lost one of his best friends in this horrible, unjust, violent death. In a sense, he just lost all of his purpose in life. He had given his entire life to this movement for the last three years. And so he goes back to his home in Galilee, and he's probably at the lowest point in his life. So how do you explain that a few weeks later, he and others are back in Jerusalem, and they are publicly and boldly preaching to the masses that Jesus rose from the grave? In fact, Peter is arrested for this. He's brought before the same Jewish leaders that crucified Jesus, and he doesn't waver on his story at all. I mean, this is the same Peter who two months before this was scared to tell a servant girl that he even knew who Jesus was. How do you explain this radical transformation? And here's the deal. The disciples weren't transformed for just a few weeks or for a few months. Their entire lives were transformed. And so maybe the most compelling evidence of all is the eventual martyrdom of the eyewitnesses. Almost every single one of the original men and women who said they saw Jesus rise from the dead were martyred as a result. They gave their lives for that. Now, it's one thing to claim that you believe something, right? We all believe things. Some of the things we believe are true. Some of the things we believe are not true. It's different to say that you saw something. So understand that distinction. The original eyewitnesses were not saying they believed something and they were willing to die for it. They were saying that they saw something with their own eyes. And they were so certain about what they saw with their own eyes that most of them gave their lives for it. And we don't have a single example of anyone recanting. We don't have a single example of any of them saying, you know, uh, now that you have a sword to my throat, I actually never saw Jesus alive. Peter just told me to say that, and I did. Please don't kill me, right? No, these men and women died for what they saw. How do you explain that? You see, at the end of the day, I can't prove to you or to myself with 100% certainty that Jesus rose from the grave. But when I ask all the hard questions, when I examine all the evidence, when I test every alternative theory, I have to admit the evidence is pretty compelling that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. And that doesn't mean I don't have any faith. I still have to have faith, but I'll tell you what, when you examine the evidence, I think if you look at it really closely, I think it might require more faith to believe that Jesus did not rise from the grave. Because then I have to explain, 
Why are there so many eyewitnesses? Why the accounts are more reliable than anything else we have? Why the stories are all so authentic? Why the disciples could have never made this up? Why there's not any counter evidence? Why the disciples were so radically transformed? And why they were willing to die for something they saw? And the only explanation that I'm left with is that it really did happen. And if it did, well, that changes everything. It means that we are all a part of something new that God did in human history and is still in the process of doing. It means that we have hope in the face of despair. It means that Jesus conquered death so we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And it means this, that when I question my faith, which I still do, when I face hardship in life, When I read other parts of the Bible, like the book of Judges, right, that I can't make a lot of sense of, or when I'm disappointed by some things that religious leaders say or do, or when I'm disappointed or overwhelmed by things that are happening in this world, it means I can always come back to one central foundational truth. I can question everything else, but I can always come back to this. Jesus died for my sins and for yours. And Jesus rose from the grave. And that changes everything. Let's pray. God, I pray for any of us who just needed some reassurance today maybe asking questions or maybe going through a difficult season and just needed to know that you really did act in history and that we really can trust in you and that you really did rise from the grave. God, I pray for anyone who maybe uh, is exploring questions like this or having significant doubts or who deconstructing their faith or, or maybe anyone who's never fully put their faith in you because they're just not sure if they can believe it. I pray that these observations and this evidence today would give them the faith they need to put their trust in you. And God, I pray more than anything else that our eyes would be opened with new wonder and new amazement and new astonishment and our hearts would be overwhelmed by a sense of how amazing you are for what you've done and that we would just be able to worship you today for what happened on Easter morning. I pray all of this in your name. Amen.